Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For this series, I'm meeting six different women, artists, musicians, writers, all of whom are taking me to a place that they hold special and that inspires their creativity. I'm heading to a North London studio where the painter and printmaker Rebecca Salter has promised me a cup of barley tea. It's one of the many traditions she carried back to England after years of living and studying in Japan. Hello. Hi, Hello. I'm Laura. Hi. Hi, very nice to meet you. Today she is a Royal Academician and holds the position of Keeper at the Royal Academy Schools. Tell me about the space we're in. So, the space we're in is my studio in North London, which is in a former industrial building. Um, actually, if you can see, it's got massive steel beams there. And somebody once told us it was a garage and they mended trucks on the second floor, which we've never been able to verify. It feels like it because it's so high ceiling, doesn't it? Yeah. And how long have you been here? 25, 26 years. You've got a big window. Which is overlooking the main London to Edinburgh railway line. Slightly disappointing that the sound of the trains has changed because when I first moved in, We still had post office trains that always went past at three o'clock in the afternoon and they made a different sort of rattly sound. So you always knew it was three o'clock when that went past. And then when there's a train strike, you can hear the the sound of the wind rustling the leaves, which is rather special. And in front of that window, you've got a very large desk. I have huge, what I suppose would would have been called an executive desk, but it doesn't look very executive anymore (laughs) because I've covered it in in paint. But I quite like the fact that it's very simple and I know where everything is. I'm working on something on the floor, which I will just lift up. It was quite a moment then when you just lifted up the sheet and and there was uh, a flash of blue from whatever Mm. you're working on there. Because when you come in here, you've got a very particular palette, apart from your Royal Academy bag, which is orange. No, it's nice. Um, But it takes a moment for the eye to settle on this palette. Yes. Now, I rather laugh jokingly say that I'm going to use colour in my next life because everything, nearly everything I do is very subtle colours. And a lot of it comes from the time I spent in Japan working with Japanese ink. Japanese ink is the best black ink in the world because it can go from a pale grey you can barely see right through to jet black. So my problem is that I feel there's enough colour in that range for one lifetime that I haven't got time to do red and green and all the others. So I'm still working on shades of black. Could you tell me about the pieces of your own work you've got on on the walls here? There are four. There are four, yeah. My background is not as a painter. I was actually trained in ceramics, which means that I actually paint in a rather odd fashion because I don't think of painting as a surface, which most people do. I think of painting as making something, so I feel it almost as structure. So for me, the real problem of painting is just having a blank surface on which you apply something. And so I have a lot of sort of activities which soften that immediate interaction. And one is to try and use both sides of the materials that I'm working with. Now, when I started working like this, I was using Japanese paper, which naturally you can work on both sides really easily. 
it's a constant battle to try and translate that into Western materials because they're not translucent. All the ones, in fact, on the wall, they're actually a base of linen which has got painting on, and then on top of that is muslin, which is painted on both sides. And that's what gives them that slightly strange, slightly out-of-focus feel. So tell me about Japan. When did you first go there? Why was that? So I went to Japan in 1979, which, looking back on it now, I think is a really odd thing to have done, because then everybody wanted to go to New York, so I have no idea why I wanted to go in the opposite direction. What was your notion of Japan at the time? Well, my notion was, of course, hideously romantic. You know, I thought I was going to live in a little Japanese paper house, you know, and all that stuff. And of course, you get a shock when you arrive, because it's why shouldn't it be in the 20th century? But So I got a place at art school in Kyoto. So I spent two years in art school and then stayed for six altogether. And what was Kyoto like at that time? I mean, it was fascinating. For me, the most extraordinary experience was, you know, you left this country as an adult because you could read and write and speak and you got off the plane not being able to read any of the signs, any of the social signs, anything. You couldn't read anything. Did any of that come through in your work? I mean, initially, you don't have any instinctive understanding of most of the things you're trying to do because you've never done them before. And that means you make a lot of mistakes, but you have happy accidents. And, of course, then you get into that difficult realm of working with somebody else's traditions... Are you appropriating those traditions? Have you learnt enough of how to do it properly to be able to then go on and not do it properly? And that's particularly important in Japanese culture because there's a tremendous respect for crafts which you learn over 10, 15 years. What's the landscape like there? Well, shall I show you my favourite view? I don't remember when, when I took this photograph, but it, I suspect it was... It could have been in the rainy season, so it's very much shades of grey. What we have here is I'm standing on what's, what's called Katsura Ohashi, which is the main bridge. So there it is, Katsura Ohashi. So to take in this, for this photograph, I'm standing on this very historic, rather important bridge looking north. And what they've done, actually, is build a tra built a train line across there. So, <laughs> indeed, there's a bit of a theme developing here. So there we are, that's that train line. It's one of the local, local trains, so that's that bridge. But this river, actually, further up there, that again is one of the most famous areas of Kyoto, Arashiyama, particularly for autumn colour. So that's where those, those hills are. So it's absolutely not glamorous at all, but it's just got particular association. You're standing on this busy bridge, looking mm. at a, a railway bridge. Yes. How noisy is it? Um, it's quite a long way, so you can just hear the rumble, but you've got cars going across the bridge the whole time. So it's, it's very noisy. But I'd, I'd often go out late at night and walk, you know, and just go and stand on the bridge in the middle of the night, particularly in a, you know, typhoon or a storm or something. So Kyoto is actually in a valley. Apart from the south side, it's completely surrounded by mountains, which makes it hideously hot in the summer. 
um, and very cold in the winter. When I first went, the university was over in the Eastern Hills. It was the city university, and they then closed that building and moved it into the middle of a bamboo forest, and they built a brand-new university. So I then moved and lived in this place called Katsura, and that is my special place. Now, historically, it was a very important place and probably the world's most beautiful wooden building, the Katsura Imperial Villa, is there. It was particularly famous for moon viewing, so there's a very famous moon viewing platform there. But it is an international treasure, really. So I lived for the rest of my time in Japan, a few, maybe half a mile or so, from there. And that's... That's the view, which is not particularly glamorous, is it? (laughs) This is the Katsura River, which is one of the two main rivers that run through Kyoto. But for me, it was the mist and and cloud on the mountains, because that epitomises the way pictorial space is shown in the East. Very different. I was in Rome last weekend, and of course there is that feeling you're outside the picture. And the Eastern tradition is very different. You are invited into the picture to walk around and explore the picture and almost go off the edge of it. And for me, the way the mist sort of almost sculpts those mountains is part of that way of seeing. Could you walk us through the colour? palette of this picture? <laughs> well, it's funny enough, it's largely grey. Um, you say it's shades of grey, but it's, it's actually, that sounds more passive than it is. It feels yes. quite electric, which is, is slightly because of the intensity of the colour, which is sort of turquoisey green. And then mm. you've got those power cables going across, haven't you? Yes, I mean, those power cables, I rather like them because they, they look like drawn lines, but um, it's not the most glamorous of, of images. And I also really liked the fact that I wasn't in the most popular part of Kyoto because most foreigners wanted to live in these eastern hills, which is where the concentration of temples are. And I quite liked the fact that I was sort of out of it in a way. So right by the bridge there, right by the Katsura Imperial Villa, is a historic Japanese sweet stroke cake shop called Nakamura-ken. And they make these extraordinary sweets out of rice paste and and, um, beans, sweet beans. And, yeah, to be able to go in there and have a cup of tea and a rice cake and then walk past, because you could walk round the Imperial Villa. It was quite complicated to go in because at the time you had to go, you had to send a postcard to the Imperial household. It was open to the public but highly restricted. And you'd get the card back saying, yes, you can go on you know, March the 10th at 3 o'clock or something, and off you'd go. But you could walk round the outside any time, and that's the outside wall of it, which is bamboo. It's That's the fence, but they've actually woven it so that the bamboo leaves all choose to kind of face outwards. That's amazing. It is. That's a stunning picture. Just to describe it, it's um, it's Rebecca standing with her the fence behind her and she's in bright sort of salmony coloured coat against this wall of green. How did you feel the first time that you went in? It is overwhelming. Should I show you some slides of it? Yeah, sure. Now this is where it gets really weird because (laughs) because 
I haven't got a slide projector anymore, <laughs> so I've got this weird box here. This is amazing. <laughs> so the idea is that you look at those slides. And yeah. <laughs> so Katsura is known for it's known for two things. Obviously, for the building. And it is one of the best examples of the way that Japanese architecture blurs the inside and the outside. And even now when I go back and I see these buildings, it just takes your breath away because we are so used to having a very, very clear boundary. However many glass windows people put in things, it's not the same as having a completely open space. And in a way that's a what room. you're doing with your work, isn't yes. it, with the layers? Exactly, exactly, yeah. And creating those slightly ambiguous spaces of you don't know what's beyond. It's all about the beyond. It's what is there beyond and how far away is that beyond. And the genius of Japanese architecture and landscape architecture is that they work with very confined spaces and create a feeling of an immense beyond. The truth about Japanese architecture is that it is all about very, very subtle and tiny changes in texture, which, of course, are incredibly hard to read. And that's exactly what this, this is about. And it's, so it's about texture. And then as you go around the garden, it's about speed. So the way they lay out the stones means you walk faster or slower, which means you look up or you don't look up, which means if you're looking down, you'll see the moss and maybe then you look up and you see the complete vista. How do you bring speed into your work? Well, I think that there is a correlation between the time it takes me to do the work and the time it takes people to, to look at it in art galleries, but um, that's my hope. When you arrived in Japan, what was the effect on you creatively? The weird thing is that Having wanted to go to Japan for a very long time, and I was never quite sure why I wanted to go to Japan. And recently I found my diaries. I mean, I'm not a diary keeper, but I did keep one for about a few weeks when I first arrived. And what is amazing, I think, is how quickly I clocked. You know, it did feel as if I'd ended up in the right place. And I think, for me, a lot of it is about materials. And... The respect for materials, the use of materials, and actually the interest in the whole process of making is something that I've, is very important to me. You know, if you do oil painting, the, the, the canvas is primed and the paint just sits on the surface. So all that canvas is doing is hanging around, waiting for the paint to sit on it. It doesn't have any other reason to be. But the thing about materials in Japan is that because they are naturally absorbent, when you apply colour to the substrate, whatever it is in Japan, the colour goes right into the fibres. So you are actually making something and it's becoming a thing. I sort of think it's almost as if there's something in there anyway and you're pulling it out. It's How do you <clears throat> contain the memory of that time and that place in your head? And, and are you ever worried about it shifting or um, do you return to top it up? I'm very worried about losing it, but I'm most... I mean, the, the thing that worries me more than anything else, because, frankly, most of this landscape's now gone. You know, it's been built on in the last 40 years, so this place is no longer really there. But I'm really worried about losing the language, because, for me, the language is the, the key, so I go back every year for a top-up.
have there been any examples of work pieces of work that you've done since being over here Mm. that really hark back to that time for me one of the most interesting was a collaboration with the composer Max Dewardner on a short film and so I worked away in my studio on these images and he was very interested in traditional Japanese musical instruments particularly the shou and the koto which is like a zither And he combined those with um, various Western instruments and composed some music. And we put the two together. And we very clearly didn't work side by side on it because we didn't want one to be illustrating the other. But the bizarre thing is that when we did finally put the two together, they both worked. And I think that's because we both have a certain attitude to space in that I always like to leave an empty space or a gap where I think the person can enter the picture. And I think listening to Max's music, there is a tremendous amount of space for you to exist within it. struck you about the landscape of the UK when you returned? Well, funnily enough, it was my second favourite place in the world, which unlocked, because when I came back from Japan, it was incredibly difficult to find a way to work, because A, I'd been working with all Japanese materials, which of course I could just go out and buy very easily, so it was incredibly difficult to find a way to work, and then I'd never been to the Lake District, and a friend said, do you want to go to the Lake District? And we could do some sketching, and we went to the Lake District. And that did it, because I found, I don't know what it was, but I found something in that landscape that reminded, I don't know what. It's Misty Mountains. It is, it's Misty Mountains, isn't it? I've got no desire to climb them, though. I like sitting at the bottom, letting other people do it. (laughs) You've been listening to the Toast podcast with me, Laura Barton. The producer is Jeff Bird, and the series was conceived by Emily Mears. You can subscribe to Toast Podcasts on our website or with your preferred podcast provider to hear more episodes from this series. <laughs>